the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, hear the words of the Lord beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from, from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattahiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. What happens uh, in this part of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is a magnificent, a truly magnificent work of reformation and revival. In the span of just a few days, God sends this amazing wave of renewal over his people who had just finished the project of rebuilding the wall. There's a renewed love for the law of God. You can see that in in how it's read and the response of the people. There's this enthusiastic worship that begins to erupt from the people of God And then, in the next couple of chapters, you read of how they consecrated themselves anew to the covenant and to the Lord their God. A revival, a reformation that had not been seen for almost some 200 years since the days of King Josiah. Now, if you look at the timeline that we passed out last week, you'll see that this story uh, tracks with the return of the last exiles 
from Babylon. The third return from from Babylon of the exiles going back to Judah, going back uh, to Jerusalem. You can download that if you didn't weren't here last week and didn't receive that. You can see that. Uh, in the tools and resources section towards the bottom of the notes, you can download the timeline, but you can see it. You can see it here. The last return under Nehemiah, they were in exile to Babylon, and now we're in the tail end of that. The temple had been rebuilt under Zerubbabel, and, and the wall had been rebuilt under Nehemiah, and now some just amazing things are beginning to take place. Now, Ezra was a scribe that, that Ezra tells us in 7.6 was skilled in the law of Moses. Nezra was one who came with the second wave uh, of exiles from Babylon. And what I love about what it says about Ezra, his, his threefold purpose in life. It's good to have a purpose statement for life. Here's Nehemiah's, Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's pretty cool, isn't it? He devoted himself, he set himself to study God's word, to study the law of God. But not just to have head knowledge, what it was to do it, to observe it, to obey it, and then to disciple others, to learn it and to obey it as well. That's pretty cool. Now, Ezra's task was restoring worship in the rebuilt temple. The first wave of exiles under the leadership of the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, the temple began to be rebuilt, and and Ezra came around the second wave, and and he was there to restore worship, to to call back the Levites, to just kind of reinstitute temple worship. And he had been already in the city some 13 years uh, by the time that Nehemiah began to do his work and came on the scene. The thing is, even though he had been laboring there, When you read Ezra and up to this portion of Nehemiah, in fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're not separated like this. It's just Ezra, okay? But you don't see up to this point any evidence of the kind of spiritual fervor or revival that we just read about among the exiles that had returned. Again, the wall had just been revealed. Actually, all the laborers went back home. And now all of a sudden, on the first day of the seventh month, we hear this. They assembled. The people assembled. They came together in Jerusalem, in the square, facing a particular wall. And what did they do? They summoned the priest. They summoned Ezra to come to do what? To read from the book of the law of God. What was taking place here? Well, they were coming back to obeying all of the ceremonial laws, all the things that God had instructed them. First day of the seventh month, Leviticus 23 tells us, is the Feast of Trumpets. And they're gathering, and now the law, the book of the law is going to be opened, and it's going to be read. And then you're going to see that they, they, they observe the Feast of Tabernacles. So Ezra does that. He opens the book, and he reads for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, two hours, three hours, four hours, Five hours, six hours from early morning to midday. Don't ever complain about how long I preach. All right? Some six hours. That's pretty awesome. I don't know if I have the stamina for that, but, but that's what's taking place over here. He's reading the scripture for hours. Now, that's no easy task, not just because of the duration. Like we read that and we go, wow, that's, that's man, reading for six hours. I can't even do six minutes sometimes, you might be thinking. 
But this was even much more difficult than you can even imagine. Not just was the task of reading, guess what also had to be done? Translation. Because the sad thing at this point is that the scripture is in Hebrew, but the majority of these exiles that had come back had adopted the language of their captors, Aramaic. So they couldn't even understand what was being read. So it had to be read in Hebrew, and then it had to be translated into Aramaic from the Hebrew. Crazy. And he had a team of translators there. I can't even imagine the logistical feat. We're talking thousands of people. This, all this taking place, people translating, all of this happened. Uh, it's an amazing thing. And, and everyone didn't have a Bible in their hands. <clears throat> it's not like everyone had that. These were large scrolls. There weren't a whole lot of them. So how they did this, I can, I can only imagine how they separated the people in divisions and how that was orchestrated and all of that. And it was read. And then the translation team would translate into Aramaic. But it didn't just stop there. They went beyond that. They, they, they made it plain. They made it understood. They expounded what? So that the people could understand. That's absolutely profound. And I want to make four points of observation before we get into some of the technical stuff of how to study God's word and, and interpreting scripture, which is our focus today. But four points of observation from this text as concerns Uh, What is the theme of this series? That we would grow to love the word of God and that it would become the joy and delight of our heart. First thing I want you to see in this passage is the people's respect and reverence for the word of God. The respect and reverence for the word of God. Verse 3 tells us that the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. There was an anticipation, there was an eagerness there was an alertness for the people now you can imagine obviously no amplification no no a public address system right none of that was happening there wasn't a line array speaker system or anything like that going on powerful subwoofers nothing the voice of Ezra reading the translators uh, translating all of these things happening they were attentive to what was being read why because God was speaking was the book of the law, the book of the law of Moses, the very words that God spoke to Moses to write down to instruct the people. Let me ask you, do you approach the reading and study of God's word with respect and with reverence? It's not a trivial matter. It's not a casual thing we should engage in, right? We should set aside distractions. We talked about that a little bit last week. We should give it the focus and the attentiveness it rightly deserves because these are no mere words. They're the very words of God. And it tells us that they stood at the reading of the law, the Torah, the instruction in verse 5. And they remained in their place the whole time. Six hours. Six hours hearing it being read and being translated and being taught and it been made clear so they could understand. How many of us would give the Lord's word that kind of attention, that kind of respect? They didn't move from their place. I'm amazed when I go back and watch the recording of the sermon, how many people's heads go back and forth on the video recording. Just people up and down, in and out. While the word is being read even. We don't give it the respect and reverence 
It's not me you're disrespecting. It's the word of God. Now, I'm not saying you can't leave if there's something urgent you've got to take care of. But brothers and sisters, we've got to train our bodies and our bladders and our minds. Right? Because I know some people, right, they'll sit through three-hour movies in a theater and they'll cross their legs and they'll hold it in, right, to not miss something. This is far more important than that. It's God's word. Now, you're probably scared to get up. Now, you're probably going to be like, oh, my God, he's watching that. Yeah, I'm keeping tally. I'm watching the video and keeping tally. (laughs) But think about that. They stood at attention. The word was being read. The law was being read. It was being explained to them. And they were attentive. We need to give God's word that kind of respect and reverence. Secondly, I want you to see the doxological aim of Scripture. Words being read. It's being expounded. And what is the response of the people? It's worship. It's worship. Your reading and study of Scripture should evoke praise, worship, and adoration of God. In fact, if it doesn't while you're reading, you're probably doing it wrong. Because when you see God work, when you see His mighty deeds, His mighty acts, when you read things about His his character and His nature, when you read about Christ and His redemptive works and the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the favor of God, man, praise should well up from within you. Worship should erupt from your mouth when you read God's Word. That should be a response. Psalm 119, 171 and 172. My lips will pour forth praise. For, your, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word. For all your commandments are right. That should be taking place. The focus of our, our reading should be God. right? It should be worship of God. Adoration of God. When I'm reading God's word, man, something just hits me sometimes. And all I can do is just begin to glorify God and worship God for what I just read. Whether it's about him or what he's done for me or what he's doing or who he is. And we should approach God's word that way. With thanksgiving and adoration for what we read and study in his word. Third, I want you to see the penetrating work of the spirit and the word. As you read... God's word works in you through the power of his spirit. In verse 9 we read, they wept as they heard the words of the law. Wow. I I can only just imagine, just think about what was happening here. All of this time, right, where, remember the temple was the central place of worship for the people of God in Jerusalem. No temple, really no worship. And the temple had been rebuilt and the wall had been rebuilt and they're coming back together as a people and now the book of the law comes out and it's being read and they hear it afresh again and it just pierces them. It just pierces their heart. And it's the law. So I, I can, yes, I can imagine this, there's this hearing of God's righteous requirements and how they had utterly failed God. How they broke his law, how they broke his covenant. So much so that God had to send them into exile. The curses of Deuteronomy 28 fell upon them. And they're hearing that being read and it is just cutting them up. But I don't think it's just that. 
I, I think because of what we see, the renewed dedication and consecration of the people of God, it was that realization once again that they were the covenant people of God. That they were, they were his treasured possession. To no other nation had the law of God been given but to Israel, to his people. How special they were, how unique they were. And I think just hearing this for hours and hours and hours just overwhelmed them. Pierced by the word. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 tells us about God's word. Verses 12 through 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's work through the power of God's spirit. We read last week that without the spirit, we don't understand God's word. Without the power of God's spirit to illuminate our minds and give us spiritual eyesight, we cannot grab a hold of this. So I see the spirit's work all over what's happening here in Nehemiah 8 as the law is being read here. But it's doing its surgical work in the hearts of the people there. That's what it does in us when we read it. And the spirit opens our eyes and we, we grab a hold of it and it just cuts us, right? It penetrates us. It lays us bare. It exposes what no one else can see, but is completely bare and naked before the eyes of the Lord. So when you approach God's word to read and study, we need to come as one who is to be transformed and shaped by the word of God. One who's not just going to be a hearer of the word, but a doer also. In fact, James chapter 1, 23 and 25 tells us, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The word convicts us. The word is the mirror that we hold up that tells us what we truly are and how we truly are and what's really inside of us. But it can stop there, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? What else does it reveal to us? Convicts us, but it reveals to us Jesus. The the hope, right? The antidote to our sin sickness, our, our condition is Christ, right? So it also drives us to the gospel, Drives us to our need for Christ and His grace and mercy. Lastly, what we see in this text is the need for careful study of God's Word to understand it. Again, it was not just read. Look how it was read. It was read clearly, right? Read clearly. That means it was expounded upon. So the people were left without a doubt about what it was saying. Not only was it translated into their language, I believe that looking at the words that are used here, it's not just translation. In fact, some of your, some translations kind of refer to it as that's all they're doing, just reading in translation. I think the ESV gets it right here, where it talks about giving the sense and the clarity with which it was revealed, that it was explained. Insight was given. The idea behind what God meant by what was just being said. We had the observation we talked about last week. What does it say? And we had the interpretation, what it means. They got 
all of that in that reading and study of the scripture there. They gave the sense, insight into the passage. You and I need to dig deeper beyond just a casual reading of God's word. We talked about that last week. Read through the Bible in a year. If you want to do that, that's all well and good. But you really have no time to dig deep into God's word. To really get behind what's, what's taking place in the scripture as you read it. Why? Because while all God's word can be understood, it's not all easily understood. <laughs> There's some passages that are really easy to grab hold of. and Oh, I get it. I understand what it says. I understand what it means. I really don't have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting there. There are other passages where I go, what on earth? What's going on here? I have no clue. But I got to get to the next day. I got to read my three or four chapters to check off the box. I got to move on. You don't have time to do that. That's why I said last week, what do we want to do? We want to slow down. We want to slow down. We want to slow down. Marinate in God's word. Be nourished by it. Feast upon it. Savor it. That requires diligent and careful study of the word of God to truly understand it. To truly know it. And that's my desire for all of us. And I think when you really do the response of the people here in Ezra and Nehemiah and what we read there, I think that becomes our response. You'll love God's word. You'll take joy and delight in it as well. All right. Let's move on here uh, and talk a little bit. I'm going to just, just a quick review from last week. We're going to move into interpretation here. Uh, I was taking this time in our series to help us understand a little bit more on how to understand God's word, how to study God's word uh, to understand truly what it says and what it means so that we can apply it, so that we can do God's word. Now, last week I talked about understanding the big picture. One of the most critical things to knowing what God's word's all about is understanding the grand storyline of Scripture. Scripture has one divine author. It's one book, and it has one central subject, Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. So it's a story from beginning to end, but it's not like any other book, right? This was written by a number of writers inspired by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit to pen things that the Lord inspired them to write using their own voice, their own personality, their own ability, their own talents, and we have the scripture, and now we're left with all these books, but it's really one book, and how do I put it together? How does it all fit together? Well, we need to understand the grand storyline of scripture, and that was one of the themes of last week's. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. You will not interpret a passage correctly or rightly, apply it to your life, if you don't understand how it fits in the grand storyline. It just doesn't make sense. And this is why we haul off and quickly apply scripture that we just read and we have no idea what it really was all about. So what are we doing with that? All right? So we need to understand all of these things to do that. Otherwise, again, we just start reading things here in Nehemiah and go, okay, what do I need to do with that? I haven't understood what it meant yet, but, well, I guess I got to read standing up for six hours. Do I have to observe the feasts? There's a whole slew of Christians out there who think they need to observe the ceremonial things in the Old Testament. Because they don't understand how God's words put together. They don't understand covenants. They don't understand what that was all about and, and who, it was, who that was dealing with, who that concerned. And what does it look like now in the new covenant under Christ Jesus. Right? So they start thinking, well, i got to do that stuff. 
Because that's a means of grace, or that's, that's, that's part of the deal here. That's not how that works. That's why we can't haul off and just do the flip and dip, read a scripture and go, how does that apply to me? What does that mean to me, and how do I apply it to my life? That's not good, being good students of God's word, okay? Uh, three principles for understanding God's word that we are walking through now. Last week, we looked at observation. That's answering the question, what does it say? What does it say, right? And, and, and in reviewing that, the goal of observation is to give a careful reading to Scripture to know what it says. We have to read, to do observation, we have to read imaginatively, we have to read thoughtfully, we have to read prayerfully, we have to read meditatively, we have to read purposefully. We walked through that last week. When we, when we read the Scripture, we're identifying key terms, phrases, people, places, uh, looking for repeated words, looking for repeated phrases, examining themes, paying attention to the grammar. I talked about that last week. And I, and I know you're like, I haven't been to an English class, a grammar class in so many years. I have no idea what a verb is or a noun is. Listen, there's a lot of great tools on the Internet. Go back and refresh that. But you need to understand how things are put together, the sentences, your paragraphs, the word choices, all of those things. It helps us understand God's word that much better. Transition words, connecting words, descriptive words, all of that. Observation is part of that. Let me just show you on screen real quick. Here was kind of my observation work just in the portion of that passage. I know it looks like scribble, but it makes sense to me. But I told you last week, what I do is I print out the passage I'm studying so I can scribble on that. There's not enough space on my Bible and stuff to do that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm circling verbs. I'm circling other things, underlining. I'm making notations on the side. I haven't even begun to really interpret the passage yet. But I'm just making observations. I haven't really gone through, really going through, looking through commentaries and other reference materials. Some of that, I might have the notes in my ESV study Bible I just looked at. But... It's the work of observation. It's to get a handle of what the text is saying. You know, there was a few words I wanted clarity on. Clearly, gave the sense, right? Understood. So what did I do? I went to my language tools and in, in my Bible software program to try to get a good understanding of the original Hebrew words, you know, the nuances of it. So I had a good understanding of, of what was taking place there. That takes a little work, right? That's not just a casual reading, but if you want to understand and you want to interpret and you really want to know what's going on there, you've got to do a little work, all right? Now, after the work of observation there, finding out what it says, we go on to interpretation. That's unpacking what a particular passage means, right? In observation, what are we doing? We're trying to determine what the author said, but in interpretation, we're trying to determine what the author meant by what he said. Now, you and I know people say something, and sometimes we really have to work to discern the meaning of what they're trying to say, right? Just sometimes on the surface, we don't really always have, we have to do some digging, some work to, to unpack the meaning behind what's being said. And this is important. Because the way we see many people handle Scripture shows just how little care that they have about what God actually said. And what did he mean? They care more about what they think it means to them personally than what God actually meant by what was written and what was said. What they feel about a passage, what it means to them personally, how it speaks to a situation in their life has a higher value to them than what the particular passage may actually mean. 
That's not how we go about doing this, brothers and sisters. Okay? We don't ever start from that place at all to try to understand meaning in Scripture. So an important element of interpretation is understanding who controls the meaning of a text. Does the author control the meaning of the text, or does the reader control the meaning of the text? What do you think? Right. Should be. But that's not how most people go about studying God's Word. Right? There's two views. You have authorial intention and reader response. These are technical terms, but they're important. Okay? Authorial intention or reader response. Two views of, of where, how meaning is derived in a passage there. Uh, the traditional view is authorial intention. That is, the meaning of any text is determined by the author. They had a meaning. They have something specifically intended that they, that they intended to communicate. And that's what we need to understand. Reader response is not that. The reader is the one who determines the meaning of a text. In this way, sometimes reading the scripture is treated like how people interpret and give meaning to art. Art is very subjective, isn't it? Right? The, the, the painter, the artist may have had some meaning he imbued into the work that he was creating, the artistic work. But typically, art is more like, let me stand in front of it. How do I feel? How does it make me feel? Oh, that makes me feel sad. Therefore, the author, the, the, the painter, right, was trying to express something sad. And, you know, it's that kind of stuff. It's very subjective in the approach to interpreting and giving meaning to something. This is how many people approach Scripture, that it is subject to our own infusion of meaning, that depending on how it, 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 we emote after reading it, depending on how I feel after I've read it, depending on my circumstances in life and my situation, what I'm going through, when I come to a text, I am going to give it, conform it to the meaning I want to ascribe to it. Now, if the Bible is just a work of great literature, uh, a book of, of how-tos, uh, helpful tips, uh, a book that gives you moral guidance only, then you are free to make what you will of a text. You are free to say, what does this mean to me? What does it mean? But if the Bible is God's revelatory word, the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God, you are not free to give it whatever meaning you want to give it. He has given it the meaning. So the question should never be, what does it mean to me? Just what does it mean? What did God intend for it to mean to the people he wrote it to? What did the author mean when he wrote it? That's the question. Now, many times, what happens in small group studies? Passage is read, and the facilitator goes, cool, we just read the scripture there. Hey, what does that mean to you? What do you think that means? What do you think? I'll go around the room asking everybody what they think that passage means to them. What does it mean to you? And you're going to get what? If there's 12 people, you're going to get 12 different answers. Because it's going to mean something different to everybody in that room. Just from the very passage we read here in Nehemiah, we're going to get a whole different answer. I just ask you, what does that mean to you? 
And you, well, as you read it, things probably popped out to you, and you're thinking about situations you're going through or something like that, and you're like thinking, well, you know, I was struggling with whether I should drink sweet wine, but Nehemiah told him to go drink sweet wine and eat the fat. See, I don't have to eat healthy. I can eat the fat. And me as a preacher, I'm going, I'm preaching far too short. I should be up in my time to six hours. Okay? <laughs> Right, We can get a whole bunch of things from a passage if we just ask, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? But we should never ask what that passage means to you. Leviticus 3.16 says, all the fat is the Lord's. And I'm like, praise God. If that, What that means to me is I don't have to eat healthy and I don't have to exercise. All the fat is consecrated to the Lord's. All this fat is the Lord's and dedicated to him. Praise God. What does it mean to me? And this is why so many scriptures are misapplied and misunderstood. All the popular scriptures you can think of are are completely just ripped from their context in scriptures because people are like, what does it mean to me? 2 Chronicles 7.14 is not applicable to the USA. If my people who are called by my name, you know that passage. It's put on posters and everywhere. That is not about the United States. It's not about any other country in the world. Who was that written to? That's what we need. What did it mean then? I'm not saying these things don't have a variety of applications and points of application, but we don't start there. We start with what did it mean? And then from there, we can move, and next week we'll begin to look at application. All right, so the correct question to determine the author's intent is, what does this passage mean? Now, two terms you should know. Uh, when it comes to how people work through deriving meaning from a text, and you've heard these terms before, uh, exegesis and eisegesis, right? There's an exegetical methods and eisegetical methods. Now, those words come from the Greek. The word exegesis means to, to lead into, all right? Eis, the prefix there means in, right? And then to lead into, Exegesis is the process of discovering the original meaning of the biblical text by studying the text according to the authorial intent in its historical context. Okay? You are reading out of the text. I'm sorry, I was reading another line here and I got it backwards. You're reading out of the text what the author intended. What's there? What is he saying? What does it mean? From there, I am deriving the meaning from what the author is saying. What did he intend? What was he trying to get across to the people who were hearing that? The unique people in a unique time and in a unique situation. This was written to them by God. What's there? Okay? That's how we're supposed to interpret a passage. But what we've been talking about is the opposite of that. Eisegesis. We're reading into the text. We're going, I'm coming with my presuppositions, my beliefs, my ideas of something, and I read a text, and what am I going to do is is I'm going to shoehorn that into the text. I'm going to read it into the text. That's eisegesis, to lead into. Exegesis is to lead out of. So you're reading out of the text what's there. That's the right way to do it, exegesis. You are reading into the text your own ideas, your own beliefs, your own presuppositions. That is eisegesis, all right? Our goal is to exegete a passage, right? That's the work we're doing. 
when we're doing observation, when we're doing good interpretation, interpretive work of, which is called hermeneutics, that's the art and science of biblical interpretation, right? We're doing exegesis. We want to do good exegesis. That takes practice. That is a skill you develop over time and putting in the work. Now, with some passages, it's not always easy to determine what the author intended, what the author meant, right? There are gaps that we're going to see in biblical understanding. Some are large. Some are not so large. It's depending on what passage you're reading. There are gaps that we need to bridge between what it meant to the original hearers and now as it's coming to us, reading it as 21st century uh, people in the modern world. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but Scripture is an ancient text. <laughs> It's really old, right? There are gaps, but we need to know what it meant to them, to the original audience. We, we speak a different language. The Bible wasn't written in English. The scriptures weren't in English, right? It's come to us today. It's been translated, right, from, from a lot of source uh, manuscript and material, but, but, but it's an ancient language, Okay? With different grammar, different sentence structure, different idioms and euphemisms, different literary devices used. And it's hard work to translate this into our modern languages. Okay? So we speak a different language. That's a, that's a huge gap in biblical understanding. We're from a different culture. Very different culture. Far removed from the cultures that we read about in Scripture. So when we read that, there is a lot there that just makes no sense to us. Now, we think we have an idea. Oh, they're agricultural. We have no idea. We're thinking like farming in the Midwest. That has nothing to do, right, with what was taking place in the Old Testament. Okay? We're from a different era. Again, we're removed from some of these people by thousands of years, brothers and sisters. Thousands of years. The world was very different back then. Life was very different back then. Even from the New Testament. We think of the New Testament era and we read passages and we're we're thinking it's kind of like, I know there weren't big cities like this, but it was kind of, no, there's nothing like it. A couple thousand years have passed since then. Communication is different. We're facing different situations. Depending on what you're reading in the Bible, those people may have been living under a different covenant. So we have all of these gaps that need to be bridged. Some big, some small, right? But we have to bridge them to rightly interpret Scripture. I'm going to walk through just a few of the gaps that we need to bridge. Uh, This is by no means exhaustive at all. There's a lot of work that usually needs to be done in this. But this is why I encouraged you last week to begin investing in some tools, right? Tools that will help you to study God's Word further. A good study Bible like the ESV study Bible, uh, commentaries, there's some online things, there's some Bible software. Uh, I can help you with all those things. But this is one of the first gaps we need to bridge, the literary gap. Okay, And that's just our seeking to understand a biblical passage according to its literary style. Okay, First, it's literary style. It's genre. What's the genre of the book I'm studying? History. Is, is, it, is it narrative like Genesis and Exodus? Or is it the wisdom literature 
like, and poetry, like Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Song of Solomon? Or is it prophecy, like the major prophets, the minor prophets? Are they the, the letters, the epistles of the New Testament? Is it apocalyptic literature, like Revelation? Why do we need to know that? Well, each literary genre, each literary style has a certain characteristic and rules of interpretation. You recall when we went through the wisdom literature of Proverbs, we had to spend some time to understand how do we read wisdom literature. It's, you just can't just read it and go, go straight to application from it. We have to understand what's the makeup of wisdom literature in ancient Israel in that time and figure out how, how do we make sense of it in modern day America for us today to even begin to apply it to our life, right? We got to do some work. And again, a good study Bible helps give you some details of, of the um, literary features of, of the particular book you're studying, and that's going to aid you in that task. Again, you also, we also need to work through the grammar. That's bridging the language gap, okay? Uh, we have highly accurate translations. Like, I love the ESV. I think it is a fantastic translation. It's not the only one. Um, but I think it's a great translation. I think it's a very reliable, trustworthy translation. When I tell you and talk about bridging the language gap or using other language tools, I am by no means implying that you cannot trust your English translation. Now, there's some translations I would say avoid. Okay, Stay away from them. Right? The Message Bible is not a translation. The Passion Translation is garbage. Throw that in the trash. Okay? The Amplified Bible, stay away from it, okay? The Amplified Bible, number one, is like eight times the size of a normal Bible because <laughs> what do they do? They import interpretation, ideas. They're gonna, it's like a thesaurus, right? So each verb now has every single nuance of what it could possibly mean in the original language, but that's a problem because what that leads is to like a choose-your-own-adventure of Scripture. I'm going to choose whichever one I like. I like that meaning of that particular word. That's not how this is done, okay? These translation teams of these Bibles, these are people who can read the source material like and know the grammar and understand it. All right? These are scholars. These are big-brained people. <laughs> all right? They, they, they know how to put... So you can, trust, you can trust your Bible, okay? But there are, there are things that you read, critical passages that you're like, you know what, I need to dig a little deeper to get a good understanding of this word. And this is where you use language tools to, to look at the original language, look at, look at the possible meanings, or, or you read uh, aids that show you, this is why the translators came out with this translation of this particular Hebrew or Greek word and why it makes sense. And, and that helps you to understand it a little bit better, again, to dive uh, a little bit deeper. But there are language gaps uh, to bridge, okay? And it's very important. We also have to bridge historical gaps. Uh, and that's, this is important because the writings of scriptures were composed in a specific culture at a particular point in history. So we need to know the historical context of what we are reading. Why? Because the people hearing this message, reading this message in that time, it meant something specifically for them that we really have no concept of thousands of years later, far removed uh, from that particular culture and point in history. Um, there can be a variety of points of application in the text. I've already said that. 
but there can only be one meaning. There's not multiple meanings in a, in a passage of Scripture. There's one meaning. Different points of application, but one meaning, all right? This is why it's important. So you need to consider who wrote the book, who's the author, okay? This, again, you could study Bible. The intros to study Bibles or Old Testament, New Testament surveys are great. All this information you can read there, right? When was it written? The date, again, that helps us situate it in uh, the timeline. The audience, who was it written to? The circumstances, purpose, what was going on at that time? What's the occasion that this particular thing had to be written, this particular letter had to be written? I love that, with, especially with the epistles. You'll begin to see, oh, why did Paul write this to this church and then write this to this church? And why these pastoral epistles? Those are things we're going to study next. So all these things we're going to, we're going to uncover uh, as we study those. Now, some of this information to help us bridge the historical gap, we're going to read right in the text. Many times, the author will tell you why, what's the purpose of their writing or who they're writing it to. But many times, we don't know that. So we're going to, we're going to need external resources uh, uh, to help us uh, with those things. And think about it this way. It's like going to a foreign country where you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you don't know the geography, you don't know uh, the practices of the people. They're, they're things that are very unfamiliar to you when you go. What do you have to do? You have to do some work now to understand, to, 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 to really function in that. We need to approach that Bible that way. Looking at it kind of like missionaries when we're coming to this, right? There are so many things that are unfamiliar to us. Unfamiliar scenes, unfamiliar practices, unfamiliar culture, different economic, agricultural, societal, religious, dietary practices, different geography, different philosophical culture. We need to bridge the historical gap to understand what the text means, okay? Bridge the gas and get a grasp of it. For instance, I don't have time to go through all this, right? When we went through our series in Revelation, we looked at the seven letters to the churches. When we got to Laodicea, I, I blew apart, right, one of the understandings that people commonly have of Jesus's reference there to being hot and cold and lukewarm. Some of you may have remembered that. Well, the actual meaning of that until you have some historical context, un- until you have an idea of some background information of that, it doesn't make sense. So we come to that and we think that's all about spiritual fervor, a degree of temperature that you need to be. And Jesus prefers you either be cold or that you actually be on fire hot for him. But if you're lukewarm, he'll spit you out of your mouth. That's not what that means at all. But that's what we've learned because people just come to the text and just... Oh, that's what it says. Let me, let me just go straight to application. Eisegetical interpretation. That's not how we do that, all right? We come to the plagues in Egypt, in Exodus. We read those and go, why frogs? Why flies? What? Why darkness? Why this or that? Well, if you understand a little bit about the culture of Egypt, the history of Egypt, the religious background, uh, the worship of the people there, you understand that this is a polemical battle taking place here that God is using these plagues to counter the ten false gods of Egypt, right? But until we do some work, until we do some research, until we dig deeper, we just read through things like that, and we don't have a full uh, understanding and meaning. Uh, The last gap I'm going to talk about that we need to bridge here is the contextual gap. Now, you've heard about buying, selling real estate. What is the most important thing? 
Location, location, location. Well, in biblical interpretation, the most important thing is context, context, context. You cannot just rip a verse out of the Bible and run with it. Okay? Can't do that. Context is everything. Because you can make a text say anything out of context. People do it all the time. Cult leaders do this all the time. Prosperity teachers do this all the time. False teachers do this all the time. Right? You can take one passage of scripture. You can read about Noah and how he got drunk and think it's okay to get drunk. You can read passages about Judas who committed suicide and you go, suicide must be okay. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say out of context. But not in context, right? Uh, we need to understand things in context. So let me just give you a few keys there. Uh, to read in context, you need to understand the flow of the argument. Think about the letters, Paul's letters, right? He is presenting an argument, a case. He's formulating something. And if you just read a verse, it may not make sense. You need to make sure you've read what came before and what follows after to understand the entire flow of thought of the writer. Super important. Okay? You have, you have to do that. This is why just flipping around and just reading a verse here and reading a verse there. You don't, you don't truly understand the scripture when you do that. The authorial disposition. Okay? And that's about the attitude of the author when the work was composed. Which contributes to the tone of what's being read. Think of some of the Psalms. You read some of the Psalms, you can... You can feel, you know, a depth of despair, weariness, you know, like, where are you, God? Then you have Psalms where he's happy, he's joyful. You read Lamentations, like, you know, it's depressing. (laughs) But it helps you understand something, all right, about why things are being written. Because you understand the disposition of the author, the authorial style, uh, refers to the writing style and capabilities of the authors. Again, I've said this. God is the divine author of Scripture. And through, through inspiration, right? The Holy, these, sometimes we think the biblical writers went into like a trance and was doing automatic writing. Uh, that's, that's not how that worked, okay? That's what we think. That's not how it happened. God worked through a particular writer's own writing ability and voice and style and personality and skills to write scripture. It, it, it's scripture. It's, it's, it's miraculous, right? It's, it's amazing how he, he did that. And, and we need to see that. And, and when you come to certain passages, and again, this may not be so evident to you as you're reading it in English, but this is where other tools help you see this. There are some writers who had a, a amazing writing ability, talent, and skill, a massive vocabulary. You look at Isaiah, uh, some scholars estimate there's some 30,000 unique uh, uh, words in Isaiah. Isaiah's vocabulary was massive. I mean, they consider Isaiah like the Shakespeare of biblical writing. But we don't get that always as easily, you know, reading it in English, but in the original language, scholars can see that. Contrast Hosea. You read Hosea, there's only some 500 vocabulary words in Hosea. So obviously not the same education level or writing ability or talent. Does it make it less the word of God? Absolutely not. 
But you get to understand a little bit about the author's style. You read Paul's writing and, and, and contrast that to James or Peter. Very different skill levels uh, in writing. Uh, theological history. Again, this goes back to understanding that these particular works were composed in a unique time uh, in history. And that's why we need to understand the biblical timeline because there's an unfolding progression of revelation through your Bible. So you read something that may be a type and shadow in the Old Testament. We see the fulfillment uh, in the New. But again, we need to understand that to, to read things in context. And really important, the literary and rhetorical devices. Okay, How the author intended someone to interpret their words. I, I always joke about this because there's a lot of people who use sarcasm but don't use it well and people can't tell that they're using sarcasm. Right, so someone says something and they ascribe a meaning to what they said because, and not getting that that was sarcasm. Now, I think I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, and some of you do as well. But there's others who are sarcastic, and they just nobody gets that. So, you know, they just want to smack people around, you know. You need to understand that there are literary devices employed in writing here. There's sarcasm in Scripture, a lot of it, a lot of it. Like Paul in Galatians. Where those who are doing gospel plus works and telling God, uh, all God's people that they, they're justified by faith plus works. You got to obey the law again too. What did he say? You know what I wish they would do? I wish they'd go the hallway and cut the thing off. That's yeah, sarcasm. That's not prescriptive. Okay? It's descriptive, but it's sarcasm. Right? We need to read that. We need to understand what's, what's going on. Like you read about Job's friends, Job's friends talking. A lot of people quote things Job's friends said in context and understanding these things. You're, you, you start seeing, oh, I'm not supposed to really follow what Job's friends said. That's not good what they were saying there. Okay, but, so we need to understand metaphor. We need to understand you know, uh, all, all of these particular literary devices, hyperbole, idiom, symbolism. Right, when we studied Revelation, a lot of symbolic things there. We got to do some work. To, to bridge the contextual gap, all right? So all of these things are very important, brothers and sisters, okay? Um, so, I, 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 again, we don't have time to, to go in depth in these things, but I'm going to equip you with tools as we go through the series to help you unpack this. Now, best way to do this is to begin to demonstrate this in the next few minutes uh, on a particular verse of Scripture, and there's one I mentioned last week, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Let's talk about that one a little bit. How do we go about in our observation and interpretation of that verse that would lead to an application of that particular verse? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It is probably one of the most dearly, Beloved, quoted promises in Scripture. It's on all sorts of Christian knickknacks out there. T-shirts, underwear, uh, baby bibs, you know, dishes, posters, uh, frames, all of that stuff. Right? Everyone loves this. It is uh, a, a wonderfully comforting uh, verse when you read it there. Now, most people prefer the NIV because it says plans to prosper you. And I like, I like that word better than... Uh, you know, welfare, you know, we think of welfare, it's like a handout, you know, it's a different use of welfare, we'll talk about that in a moment, but plans to prosper you, yes, absolutely, all right, um, 
prosperity teachers love to quote this verse, right? Oh, this is like one of their favorites. Why? Because it's a proof text that God wants you healthy and wealthy. It's a promise. God says so. If you're suffering or sick or poor, then you got no faith because this is saying God's plans is for you to prosper in every way, okay? But now, if you interpret it that way, it's because you're asking, what does this mean to me? But that's not, what does it mean, right? Nothing about this verse is a blanket promise of bliss. It just is not. If we're going to be diligent students of God's word, we need to begin to apply some of the things that we've been talking about and what we've learned. Now, as I read that verse, one of the first things I'd want to know in my translation here is that word welfare. What is welfare there? Again, I'll read different translations like the NIV. All right, it means to prosper. Okay, well, what does that mean? I use some language tools, and I see that it's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. It's the word we understand as peace. Now, it's a very robust word, in the original Hebrew here. It's, it's one of wholeness, completeness, thriving. It, it can mean prosperity and it can mean health. But it's, it's a much, much richer meaning. So plans to give you what? Shalom is what God is promising to his people here. Now, understanding this is in Jeremiah, well, that immediately tells me who the author is, right? It's, Jer- it's Jeremiah, in case you didn't know. It's Jeremiah, all right? And so who's Jeremiah? All right, I start asking some of the questions we already began to to talk about. Who's the author? It's Jeremiah. When was it written? Well, I go to my Bible timeline or I, I study a little bit, understanding who he's writing to. I see he is working, prophesying, writing during the, the to the second, uh, uh, right on the tail end uh, of when the people of God, just right before they are taken into captivity. He's, he's prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. All right? And he's also prophesying a short time after when already some had been taken into uh, exile in Babylon. All right? So this is kind of situates Jeremiah in that time in history of when he's beginning to write these things. All right? Sixth, seventh century BC, sometime around there. And, and that means who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to Judah. Okay, remember the, 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 the kingdom divided, right? And you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been swept away into Assyria, but now you have this whole issue here with Judah. And remember, Judah's the covenant line, right? The Davidic covenant, the promise of the Messiah is coming through the line of Judah. He's, he's prophesying here to, to Judah, all right, the people of God, the covenant people of God. This is theocratic Israel under the Mosaic law and the covenant God made with David. Right? So it situates for me, again, who he's addressing, the people. I immediately know this is not the church, not the way we understand it here now. I got to know who he's writing to because this meant something to them. Not to me, to them, not to you, to them at that time. They're about to go into exile, or some of them were already in exile. Now, the literary style is prophecy, right? So I need to understand that already has some particular rules and characteristics of interpretation. Prophecy can be read a little bit like sometimes the epistles, right? Sometimes there's direct commands, there's announcements, proclamations, uh, calls to repentance, warnings uh, of impending judgment, all of that there. 
And we know as we read Jeremiah, so we're reading it in context, we know he's writing to a rebellious people. As you read the warnings, as you read the calls to repentance, you already get the picture. These people weren't being faithful to the Lord. They were given into idolatry. They were doing all sorts of evil things. And, and Jeremiah's warning them, calling them, pleading with them to repent and, and turn to the Lord because they had broken covenant with God and severe judgment was on the way or was already there. Now, the people ignore that, right? The people ignore that. So the prophecy changes in, in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 25, you see him begin to prophesy that they were going to be taken into captivity. That God was raising up the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was going to take them into exile. He was going to decimate Judah and Jerusalem. He was going to utterly conquer them and take them into captivity. All right. Now, what we get into now with this promise in Jeremiah 29 and how it begins to shape here is we see that God is not going to utterly forsake his people. He's not abandoning his people, even in their rebellion, and even under this judgment that they find themselves under. There's actually an expiration date to the judgment. 70 years. This is not going to be a forever thing, but it's going to be a long thing, all right? 70 years, the length of their punishment and exile, and after that time, they would be brought back to their land. So what are they to do now? What are they to do? Ripped from their homeland to this foreign land, or in essence, they're, they're slaves. Where, how are God's people to live? What are they to do? Well, this is where this promise kind of comes in and thunders through. God is saying, listen, hunker down, settle in. This is going to go for the long haul. What was happening is there was other prophets coming around claiming to hear from God that this punishment was going to be brief. It's only going to last a couple years. And we're going to be right back where we were. Greater days ahead. The best is yet to come. Oh, yeah, no, God's going to deliver us in a short time. And, and, and through Jeremiah, he's saying, no, 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 no. Don't listen to them. Just ignore the false prophets. Seventy years is it's, what's going to be. But my plans are going to prevail. So what I want you to do is settle in. Build houses. Think of build houses. That tells you it's not going to be short term. Marry. Have kids. Plant vineyards. Live there. And he says, seek the shalom of the city. Seek the well-being, the prospering, the thriving of where you're settling in. God's going to take care of you. In essence, God is saying, even in the midst of judgment there, I am going to bless you. And we don't have time to get into this, but this is a stunning, like, temporary suspension of the curses of Deuteronomy 28. You read Deuteronomy 28, when the people rebel and under a curse, it says that this, the opposite of this. Their houses are going to be destroyed. Their daughters are going to be raped. Their marriages are going to be falling apart. Right? They're going to plant vineyards, but God's going to wipe those things out. And God is saying, no, no, even now in captivity, look what I'm going to do for you. And it's going to be 70 years. It's, it's awesome. It's beautiful what's taking place there. But God was not going to abandon them through that. God was still going to look out for them and bless them during their uh, exile. Again, he's going to use this time of, this, of the exile here, yes, to judge them, to punish them, but also to draw them back to faithfulness and obedience. 
That's what he does during this time and gives them a, a reprieve on these um, curses of Deuteronomy 28. Right? God has a plan for his people. And God is saying, I'm faithful to keep those plans. I will keep my covenant. What had God promised he was going to do? He's going to fulfill that. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. He's going to bring them back to the land. And he's going to fulfill the promises he made to his servant, David. Okay? This is for theocratic Israel. Right? Very important. Because that's what the passage means. That's who it was written to. I'm going to take care of you even in captivity. Even in exile. Settle in. 70 years. You'll be back. Now, understanding that, I can't just apply that passage directly to my life. Because I'm not part of that covenant like that. I wasn't in exile in Babylon. Neither were you. Or are you? You aren't, right? I, I, I can't. It, this passage, this promise doesn't exist in a vacuum. That's why I can't just take it out and put it on the wall and declare it. And it's, and it's just bliss, happiness, health, wealth, protection, prosperity. Because that's not it. It was written to a unique group of people living in a unique place in a unique time. Now. Does this verse have application for us today? Yes. How do I apply it? We'll do that next week. But I first need to understand what this means. What did it mean to the original audience? It was written to because it was to them. You've heard it said. The Bible is written for us but not to us. Okay? was written to a specific people. Even the letters were written to a particular people in a particular church, in a particular region, in a particular time. Of course it has application for us. Of course we learn. Of course it's instruction for us. But first I got to know what it means and what it meant to them first and foremost. Then I can do the work of going, okay, how does this fit in now? Especially in all of the fulfillment of the promises in Christ. What does this look like for us today? So we'll also, as we're working through application, we're going to come back to this passage to work through the interpretation of what it means and now what do I do with it. Okay? God's word is amazing and powerful, brothers and sisters. I, I just, I, again, my desire through all this is that you would just love, fall in love with God's word and just feast upon it every single day. God speaks to us through his word. He makes himself knowable. You ever stop to think for a moment how God condescends to reveal himself through his word to us? God's not like us. He's a whole other being. Yet he's revealing himself through his word to us. And, and, and I pray we would be like the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. That we would experience that kind of reformation and renewal as, as we come to his word. That God would just, just awaken us right, to this kind of, of spiritual devotion as, and fervor as we read and study his word. To know what it means. To know what it's saying and, and how to apply the timeless principles uh, of his word so that you and I would be transformed. Our lives would be transformed to the glory of God. So as we open the scriptures, may our hearts be filled with awe and wonder and praise, and worship, and adoration of our God.